Father, our prayer this morning is the song that we just sang. Would you speak to us? Lord, we thank you so much for your precious gift of your word. May we be faithful with that gift this morning. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 40 through 52 this morning. John 7, 40 through 52. So the Feast of Booths, if we're following along here in John, the Feast of Booths has ended. I feel like I'm echoing a lot. Am I echoing a lot? Is that just me? Okay. So the Feast of Booths, it's ended, and John gives us a summary here of of just what we've seen. Um, That's what we're going to be looking at today. It's sort of a summary of what's the situation in Jerusalem. So remember then how this whole story started out at the beginning of the chapter. It started out with Jesus and his brothers talking. Well, really, it started out with Jesus' brothers taunting him about the idea that he was the Christ. And then from there, Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths. If you remember, we slipped through the crowds, and what we heard was we heard people asking questions. We heard people making guesses. We heard people arguing about it. We heard that they were all hiding what they were talking about, which was Jesus, from the Jews. And then we heard from Jesus. After moving through the crowds, we actually heard from Jesus. We saw this run-in with the Jews. And so now, before we leave the feast and we move on, John reminds us of what we've seen here. The confusion that's in Jerusalem. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, this confusion that's in Jerusalem. It's been on my mind a lot recently. But I've said it before, but when Jesus shows up, he brings tension, and he brings confrontation, doesn't he? When, when Jesus shows up, he, he brings division. That's what his presence has done to the Feast of Booths. And we're going to see that division. It's going to come to a head today. You know, we always tend to think about Jesus bringing unity, but that's not really what we've been seeing in John chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. He hasn't been bringing unity. He's been highlighting divisions, confusion, and disagreement. That can happen too, can't it, when Jesus shows up? On a personal level, I think I've been thinking about how the presence of Jesus brings all kinds of turmoil. Just this, this principle that Jesus can bring division, he can bring turmoil. On a personal level, you know, we see our own sins. We, we hate those sins, and yet also at the same time, we kind of love those sins too in, in a broken, weird way. And when Jesus comes, he brings turmoil into our hearts because Jesus is the Son of God. He's, he's perfectly holy. He's perfectly pure. His whole reason for coming was to die for our sins. And, and so when, when he comes, it, it gives turmoil, doesn't it? in our own hearts because of the sin that's present there. Here's an encouragement, though, I want you guys to think about here. So often when we feel turmoil in our souls, what we believe is that Jesus is nowhere to be found. We believe that turmoil in our souls is a sign that we're without God. But in truth, isn't it possible that turmoil in your soul might be pointing to the fact that Jesus is working on you, that, that, that Jesus, his presence in your life is causing that turmoil in you. 
the purity and the holiness of Jesus. So Jesus brings division even just within our own hearts. Jesus brings division within families though too, doesn't he? This shouldn't surprise us. I mean, as we think about it, isn't that what we hear in the other gospels that Jesus, he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. He came to set fathers against sons. He came to set mothers against daughters. He came and his very presence was going to bring division between families. So what is it that is at the core of the division and the turmoil that we see when Jesus is around? That's what we want to think about as we're looking at the confusion in Jerusalem. What's at the core here? It's what John has been talking about throughout the whole book. Here is what causes the divisions. Here's what causes the disagreements. Here's what causes the turmoil. It's wrestling with the question. It's the question John has asked and put in front of us over and over again. Who actually is Jesus? Who is he? Wrestling with that question can cause so much division and turmoil, can't it? Wrestling with who is he? Within your own heart, you have to ask the question within your own heart, is Jesus just a savior? Is he just someone who is going to give us forgiveness and and a hope beyond this life? Or is Jesus also a Lord? Do we owe him our allegiance as well? How you answer that question is going to make a massive difference to what happens within your heart, isn't it? Within families, a child might believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and a parent might not. And they can't come to grips with it. Or a parent might believe that we must live in obedience to Jesus. And so they're doing that and they want to do that with their children. But as their children grow up, their children don't believe that they must live in obedience to Jesus. Because they disagree on the question, who exactly is Jesus? What do we owe him? This is the question that's at the heart of so much of what we've been seeing here in John. I want you guys to think about just, it, it, it is the question that's at the very heart of who you are as well. How you answer that question, who is Jesus, is going to determine so much about who you are. You think about it in the area of contentment. I've been thinking about contentment a lot recently, too. We all know that Christians were called to be content, right? Paul, he, he sets the standard for us. Paul says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. But it is hard to have contentment when there's division and there's disagreement and there's turmoil, isn't it? In fact, it's impossible for you to have contentment in your heart when you are divided on this question. Who is Jesus? When you're divided on, within your own heart, when you're divided on the question, who is Jesus, how could you be content? Massively important for us to wrestle with this. And what we're seeing here today in John 7, 40 through 52 is what happens when people can't answer the question, who is Jesus rightly? So let's read, beginning in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay, so we're going to break this down into three parts this morning. First, we're going to look at the division that this question brings, the division this question brings. Second, we're going to see how that division leads to disagreements. And then we're going to look at Jesus. So in verses 40 through 43, we see the divisions here. And they're the same divisions that we've already seen. And in fact, we've been seeing these same questions since before Jesus even began his ministry. Back when John the Baptist was preaching and the Jews came. And do you remember what the Jews did when they came to John the Baptist? They wanted to know who he was. They wanted to know, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Who are you? Some thought he was the prophet that Moses had spoke of. They were divided over it. Others thought he was the Christ. You know, here's the funny thing, right? As readers, we're reading John 7, we're reading this story here, and, and, and what do you want to say to him? You want to say he's both. <laughs> Guys, you both are missing it. But they were so committed to how they thought things should be. They were so committed that when, when Jesus, who was the prophet and the Christ, both was right in front of them, they were divided over this. And you see those assumptions, they're on display in verse 42. They don't even know where Jesus was actually born. We know he was born in Bethlehem. They don't even know, but it doesn't matter to them. They have already made their conclusions. They, they, they're already wrestling. They're dealing with their own assumptions here. MacArthur says they did not even bother to investigate his true birthplace, showing their lack of interest in messianic credentials. That's not what they were concerned with. He didn't fit what they were expecting. And you know, you think about it here, what we're seeing here is that gossip and speculation, that was alive and active, you know, long before we had mainstream or social media, jumping to massive conclusions, arguing without doing research, going ahead and, and, and putting the hill that you're going to die on, no matter what. And when it comes to Jesus, guys, when it comes to Jesus, you and I are battling so many cultural assumptions when we talk to other people about Jesus, aren't we? There are so many assumptions that people make about Jesus. People think that they know everything they need to know about Jesus without ever having even read the Bible for themselves. 
They've already determined who he is. And when you start talking about him, I guarantee you in our culture today, when you start talking to somebody about Jesus, they already have an idea of who you're talking about. And it's probably wrong in some way or another. Nothing's new though. This is the way that we are. But as Christians, we absolutely cannot afford to make the same mistake. We have to give ourselves over to learning everything about Jesus. We have to give ourselves over to understanding the fullness of who Jesus was in Scripture. We can't allow our assumptions to lead us to think, oh, I I know everything there is to know about Jesus. One, that's not true. You won't ever know everything there is to know about Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. When, When Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are your ways, that applies to Jesus as well. You will never plumb the depths of who Jesus is. But so often we pick one aspect that we can see of Jesus and we simply focus on that and and we let all the others go. We can't do that. Spurgeon said, I never could believe in the Jesus of some people for the Christ in whom they believe is simply full of affectionateness and gentleness. Whereas I believe there was never a more splendid specimen of manhood, even its sternness than the Savior, and the very lips which declared that he would not break a bruised reed uttered the most terrible anathemas upon the Pharisees. I guarantee you that you read any one of the four Gospels and you will be challenged in what you think about Jesus. But again, we make our assumptions. We lock in on the things that attract us. We lock in on the things that make sense to us and and we bear down on them. And we see it here, even here in Jerusalem, as they're talking. Some people understood the concept of the prophet that Moses talked about. And, And they're settled on, no, this has to happen this way. Others go, well, no, I've seen what he's done. I mean, my goodness, I think he might be the Christ. And there's division that's coming up. We must know all about Jesus. We must delight in all that we know about Jesus, which can be challenging too, can't it? To delight in everything that we see about Jesus in Scripture. To worship Him for all of it. To follow Him. He is both the one who is tender and caring. He is also the one who will crush every one of his enemies under his feet. We can't have this kind of division within our own heart. We can't have it within our churches. We can't have it. It breeds terrible discontent. If we're divided over whether Jesus is Lord of every part of our life, our hearts are going to look a lot like the Feast of Booths here. Think about that. Because this kind of confusion, it follows the real Jesus of the Bible everywhere. We cannot get taken in by it. We have to destroy every single assumption we make about Jesus so that we can know who this person is that we say owns us, rules over us, provides for us. He will bring us into eternity. And so these divisions, they lead to confusion. But these divisions, they also, we see here, they lead to disagreements. And that's the next thing. 
So first we see that the question, who is Jesus, it leads to divisions as people have their own assumptions, their own ideas. They don't do the research. They don't listen. They don't care to. But then division will lead to disagreements. And we see that here. Some are just fine with being confused about Jesus. It's just a thing to talk about. Hey, you remember all that conversation we had a couple years back at the Feast of Booths about that guy, Jesus? That was really interesting. But some aren't going to settle for that. They're going to come back hard against Jesus. Jesus is offensive to many people. And here, when Jesus came to the Feast of Booths, who came back the hardest against him? Do you see this? The leaders of Israel came back the hardest against Jesus. The shepherds of God's people were the ones who came back the hardest. So so let's look and see what happened here. Look at these officers who disobeyed their orders. Some wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't. So John, what he does is he takes us to this scene with the Jewish leadership because it was the Jewish leadership that wanted to arrest him. So we look at these officers. They're asked a very simple question. Why did you not bring him? But their answer here is actually really important. The answer they give is, no one ever spoke like this man. Let's think about a couple of things here. One, they did not blame the mood of the crowd or the publicity of the moment for not arresting him. They didn't say, well, it was just a really sensitive moment. You know, the the crowds were pretty stirred up. Uh, we just, we, were, we weren't sure it was a good idea. We were a little, you know, intimidated about what the reaction, they didn't blame the crowds for the fact that they didn't arrest him. They went straight to what Jesus was actually saying. That's what kept them from arresting him. So what we're seeing is they didn't arrest him because they themselves are struggling with the question, who is this guy? So the crowds were, and now we see the officers, they're struggling. That leads us to the second thing to keep in mind here. I mean, these guards are not simply guards. It wasn't like they hired some sort of guard service to do this. Who who were the guards in this context? I mean, they're from the Levite family themselves. They would know and they would believe the scriptures themselves. Something about Jesus clearly resonated with these Levites So that when they heard him, I mean, they might also have been confused like the rest of the Israelites we've seen, but they know there's something about Jesus here. Something he's saying is resonating with them. They're not as hard-hearted as the Pharisees are. So they're wrestling now too. He's brought, Jesus has now brought turmoil to the guards there in the temple area. And it's over the same question. Who is this guy? But look at how the Pharisees respond. The Pharisees are scornful and they're mocking. The Pharisees are still committed wholeheartedly to their attack on Jesus. They don't care about researching the validity of Jesus' background. They don't care about what Jesus says about the Bible. You see it written plain in their attitude towards the guards and in their attitude towards the people and in their attitude towards Nicodemus. In three ways here, we see it written clear. They don't care about the truth at all. They're arrogant, they're condescending, 
They know best, and the rest of the Jewish people should just shut their mouths and believe them. So they tell the guards, they say, have you also been deceived? In other words, are you really that gullible? Have you been taken in by this guy too? Look at us. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Of course, that's a convenient statement, but there's cracks in it as we're going to see as we continue on. Even that statement has some pretty strong cracks in it. But here's here's the kicker. They say, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I want you to feel the condescension. I want you to feel that just dripping off of these words. But the crowd, who is the crowd they're talking about here? It's their people. It's the people that they are supposed to be shepherding and leading. It's the people they're supposed to be teaching. But this crowd, they don't know the law. They're accursed. Listen to how one commentator describes this. He says, this is an exact representation of the way that many learned rabbis viewed the common folk, the people of the land, as they condescendingly labeled them. Amongst the rabbis, the people of the land always refers to the people who do not know the law, i.e. the law of Moses, both as it is found in the Hebrew scriptures and as it was thought to be preserved in oral tradition. And if they do not know it, they cannot keep it. Since the law is the law of God, the people of the land are characterized by both ignorance and impiety. This was their view. So they're saying these people who are just over here confused. They're not listening to us. They're just a bunch of accursed people. And you guards, you may as well be just like them. Ugh. So they're looking down on their people. They're they're appealing to their superior knowledge, their intellect, their understanding of the law. And then look at this. So, So at this point, we've seen their attitude towards the guards. We've seen their attitude towards the people. But then look at this. One of their own raises a question about it. A fair question, by the way. And they knock him down too. So what does Nicodemus do? Nicodemus simply points out, uh, hey guys, um, the attitude here doesn't seem to line up with the law. He says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? No, actually it doesn't do that. It requires testimony. It requires hearing both sides of the argument. But the answer they give is almost unbelievably ironic. They actually highlight Nicodemus's point when they mock him and they shoot him down. They say, are you from Galilee too? Which, again, just feel the condescension coming off of them there. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Boom. Done. Search and see, guys. We know the law We know it all. No prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, don't fall in with all those stupid people. Wait a second. Here's the irony, right? This is what John is is subtly pointing out. If they would only do what Nicodemus suggested, what would they find out? They would find out that Jesus actually does fit perfectly with who the Messiah would be. They don't care about the truth. 
cannot emphasize that enough. They don't care. They don't care whether Jesus is who he says he is. They don't care whether Jesus is the Messiah. They care about themselves, period. And looking at it objectively, let's ask the question, what would happen if these leaders of the Jewish people What would happen if they accepted that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah? What would come from that? Wouldn't it change everything about their lives? Wouldn't it change everything about their own position? Wouldn't it change their authority? Wouldn't it change their influence? Wouldn't it change their... if, if, If Jesus was who he says he is, and they accepted that, they would have to change everything about the way that they have been doing business, the way that they've been living. Because here's the thing, guys, when Jesus does come, and when you do submit to who he actually is, that can actually be even more disruptive at first. When when, when he does break into your heart, and you do see that he is not just the Savior, but the Lord, that he is the King of kings, that he does own you because he bought you with a price. He redeemed you from your sins. He made you God's child. When that happens, that's actually way more disruptive initially than any confusion or division just over the question of who he is. Because there's a whole restructuring that has to happen, right? You're no longer the authority over your life, guys. Jesus is. You're no longer doing things just because you wanted to do them. You're doing them for Jesus and for the glory of God and because you want Him to be pleased with you. You want Him to have worship from you. You want Him to have all the glory for everything that you do. So when Jesus does come in his rightful place, initially, that's incredibly disruptive. So the leaders of Israel fight as hard as they can against Jesus because they do not want that disruption. Of course, you and I, maybe you were one of these people, maybe you are one of these people, but we've known people certainly who have fought as hard as they can against Jesus because they do not want the disruption that he brings. They do not want the total restructuring that happens within their hearts. So they fight as hard as they can here. So think about what we're seeing, guys. There's a massive confusion There's divisions among the Israelites here at the Feast of Booths. What we're seeing here is a good picture of the whole of God's people. Do you remember what the Feast of Booths is? It's it's one of the biggest feasts of the year. Everybody who's anybody is here. We're getting a, a good representation of Israel, God's people during the day when Jesus was walking on earth. Consider how important that was. So in the flow of John's story, we're seeing all the confusion among Israel, God's people. And then we're taken from the confusion among Israel and we're lifted up to look at who? The leaders of Israel, the shepherds of God's people. 
And so that's what we get to see. We're getting to see the flock and then we're getting to look at the shepherds. When you do that, when you see what a mess, what a confusion the flock is, and then you look at the shepherds, that's when you go, okay, okay. That's why the sheep look the way they do. That makes a lot of sense. God sees his people as his flock, right? He sees his people as sheep. Not all that flattering. But let's be real, it's also accurate, isn't it? We were made to have shepherds. We were made to. We were designed by God to be shepherded. But when Jesus came to God's people, the shepherds there had failed miserably. They failed just like they had failed before. Don't forget, this is the same people from the Old Testament. Listen to this from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Do you see what he did there? He, he called them the shepherds. They had the title, right? They had the title. These were the, the people who were supposed to be shepherding Israel. But did you notice what he said right in the midst of there? He said, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. There were people who called themselves that, but they weren't. They weren't at all. How bad was it when Jesus came to his people? It was so bad that we see the earthly shepherds of God's people fighting against what they see as a threat. That's what we see in John chapter 7 today. The earthly shepherds of God's people, they are fighting against what they see as a threat. But it's a threat against who? You know, a shepherd ought to fight against threats against the sheep. But these shepherds aren't doing that. No, these shepherds are mocking the sheep. They're looking down on the sheep. They just want the sheep to do what they say. And they do not, they do not, under any circumstance, they do not want the sheep to find another shepherd. Obviously, guys, we could see a parallel here for today. There are pastors and there are elder teams that act like these Jewish leaders looking down on their flocks and fighting only for themselves, wanting to protect themselves instead of being focused on God. And we would ask, what protects us from that? What protects us from that is a total commitment. A total commitment from the under-shepherds, because here's the irony, right? The under-shepherds in the church are sheep themselves. And so because of that, we need a total commitment together, the under-shepherds and the sheep, to submit to the authority of Jesus. 
We have to answer the question rightly, who is Jesus? And then live by that. How do we protect ourselves? We protect ourselves by we all committing together to hold one another to the authority of Jesus. He is the shepherd. But the terrible tragedy for the people of Israel here, for God's people, is that their shepherds are fighting against the one who is supposed to guard them. You know, we've been asking, who is Jesus? We've gotten a bunch of great answers for that. He's the Word of God, the second person, uh, the eternal second person of the Godhead who created everything, sustains everything. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's living water. But to these Jewish leaders, they have their own answer to this question. And it's an answer that a lot of people give. Who is Jesus? He is a threat. That's their answer to this question. Who is Jesus? He's a threat. He's a threat to their position. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their established way of life. Of life. And he's a threat to so many people. He might be a threat to you. You might see Jesus, at least in part, part of your answer to Jesus might be that he is a threat to your way of life. It's clearly how they've answered this, though. The earthly shepherds are fighting against the eternal shepherd here. But I want you to see as we close, I want you to see something. Because it can feel hopeless. This picture of the shepherds of God's people fighting against the shepherd. It's, it's, it's so ironic. It's so deeply tragic when you really think about it. But whether they fight against him or not, whether their decision is that Jesus is a threat, it doesn't matter. He is the shepherd. <laughs> no under shepherd is going to stop the shepherd. I mean, think about what else we're seeing here. These shepherds of God's people, they are fighting against what they perceive is a threat. How far are they willing to go? Well, we already know how far they're willing to go. They're willing to go all the way. They, they want him dead. They want him out of the picture. They will go all the way to get rid of this threat to their position. But how great and powerful is the shepherd that we're here trusting in? He was shepherding all through that. It was always his intention to go all the way. In fact, he had to go all the way in order to shepherd us the way that we needed to be shepherded because our massive problem as sheep, as rebellious, hard-hearted, stubborn, assumption-making, prejudiced sheep who've already decided so often what we believe without giving it real thought, without humility, with pride, are sinful sheep. We deserved to be put to death for that. Any shepherd who would be worth following with our whole lives has to save us from that. Has to cleanse us from that. Has to take care of the condemnation that we live under. 
So even here, as they think that they're fighting for their power and their position, what's actually happening is that the shepherd is coming to call his sheep and cleanse them and make them new, wash them whiter than snow. He's calling them and making a flock. How important is it for you and I to see who Jesus truly is? It is the most important thing in the world. Assumptions, pride, selfishness, whole lot of earthly desires that we all have, they can lead anyone into thinking that Jesus is a threat. And when we think that, we're going to ignore truth. We're going to ignore being reasonable. When the Nicodemuses show up and they're like, hey man, I'm on your side, but hey, you're not being reasonable here. Let's really look at this. We'll shut them down. That's what happened when Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's what happens even now. Yesterday, my brother preached a funeral for somebody who died suddenly. He asked me to pray for him. He said the room was full of people who, who, who didn't know the gospel, many of them who were very actively and blatantly living against the Lord. That can be really intimidating, can't it? It can be intimidating even for a pastor. It can be intimidating to, to talk to people who vocally, clearly view Jesus as a threat. It can be good to remember this. Jesus brings division and disagreement when people don't accept who he is. And that, that can also be the gospel at work, though. Don't be discouraged just because you see division and disagreement. But we have to answer the question completely and fully. You have to wrestle with it. Who is Jesus. Nothing else matters if you don't answer that question right. He is the shepherd. He is the Savior. He is the Lord in every single way. He owns you. I would encourage you, think this week. There are things that I know that everybody in this room are struggling with. Think about what you are struggling with and in that context, ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? In the context of what you are going through right now, who is Jesus? Answer it honestly from Scripture and submit yourself to that. He's everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can answer the question, who is Jesus? We don't have to speculate. We don't have to theorize. We don't have to hypothesize. We don't have to make up anything. You have given us everything that is sufficient for us to know you the way you want us to know you. You've given us everything that is sufficient to know who Jesus is and why that matters to us. You've given us your word, your revelation. From beginning to end, it is about who Jesus is in your plan and what your plan is. So Father, I pray that we would wrestle with that question. I pray that every opportunity we get to answer that question, we answer it. We proclaim the excellencies 
of Christ until he comes. Lord, help us this week as we pray together here. I pray that each person here would think about what they are going through and how they are being called on to trust you. I pray, that, Lord, that they would think about the circumstances they are in right now and that they would wrestle with the question, okay, in the midst of this, do I remember who Jesus is? And do I trust who Jesus is? Lord, help us to look to you. We're so tempted to look at our circumstances and make them so huge. Or we're tempted to look at ourselves and what we can do. Father, point us back to Christ. Help us this week, Lord, also. We may have somebody in our minds that we want to talk with. We may have somebody in our minds that we want them to hear about Jesus. Lord, help us when the opportunity arrives and you give us so many of them that we would see that a question that's being asked there, whether it's said publicly or not, the question that could be being asked is, who is Jesus? And we would answer it. Help us, Lord. Thank you. Amen.